You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I have on the podcast Pete Saunders. He's a AICP. He's a contributor with Forbes. He's an urban planner, and his expertise is in America's Rust Belt cities. He's a planning consultant with PDS Consulting. He's the editor and publisher of The Corner Side Yard, which is a digital publication that I was recently told I needed to read, and I'm very thankful that I have. I, I wanted to have him on to chat about things, but there's one hang up. Uh, I found out that he is a White Sox fan. So uh, <laughs> even so, we can be friends. Pete Saunders, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Chuck, thank you very much for having me. You're actually a former Detroit Tiger fan or grew up maybe a, a Detroit Tiger fan. And you said you have adopted the White Sox now? Yeah, I uh, grew up in Detroit. I moved uh, to Chicago nearly 30 years ago. Yeah, honestly, I had a lot of uh, Cubs hatred, <laughs> quite <laughs> frankly. Yeah, that 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 even preceded my uh, love of the White Sox. Right now, back in 1984, that was a year that Tiger fans know very well as the, the last time that they won the World Series. But that was also the year that a lot of Cubs fans felt that they were deserving of going to uh, the World Series that year. Um, and you know, the first time in, you know, X number of years for them. That would have been the, the, I, like, uh, the Sandberg it, era, wasn't it? And, um, that was the Sandberg, Andre Dawson, yep. Joe Buckner. Era, that was a great team. Yeah. That was a great team. That was a very great team. And I heard all about it. I was going to college. I went to Indiana university. A lot of Chicago kids go to Indiana. And I was hearing all about the Cubs this, the Cubs that, the Cubs this, the Cubs are great. And I'm thinking, are you guys looking at the American League and seeing what the Tigers are doing? Uh, and I just really uh, uh, developed a, a dislike for Cubs fans. Even <laughs> though uh, I, I love the stadium, love yeah, I love what they do, but. Just a lot of contempt, I think, that I had for the Cubs and the fans at that time. And, uh, of course, they lost the Padres in the World Series. And the Tigers uh, went on to uh, beat the Padres. I think it was 4-1 to in the World Series. Yeah, that was a, a great team. But uh, I moved to Chicago uh, in, uh, like I said, 30, it's 30 years this year. And really kind of adopted the White Sox. The Tigers went through some very lean times. I saw the White Sox as a team very much like the Tigers uh, in terms of having a celebrated location on a, an off-neglected part of the city, a working-class uh, fandom. I found the White Sox to be very similar to the Tigers. They were kind of ascending at the same time that the Tigers were kind of falling down. So I uh, became a White Sox fan that way. I, of course, am a Minnesota Twins fan. That's my home team. So, you know, obviously there's some, there's some rivalry with the White Sox and, and the Tigers as well. Last year I would have maybe felt differently, but this year, you know, it, it's not very classy when you're on top to, you know, make fun of the others. We're having a good year this year. The Twins are. The White Sox are selling 
I don't know if that makes you happy or not. They're rebuilding, I guess, but um yeah. Well, I, they are rebuilding, they are selling, and I think that it was a long time in coming, and I think they're doing it well. Uh, they're getting the right kinds of prospects. You know, I was as sad as anybody at first to, to see Chris Sale go. He was the face of the franchise, you know, for several years. But you know, they tried to win and win now, but also do it relatively on the cheap. And I think that you can't have it both ways. They've decided to, uh, you know, put their stock in the future now. I have been to both stadiums in Chicago. I've been to Wrigley and I've been to U.S. Cellular. I found your insights on them very fascinating. I think there's a deeper analogy here, and you call it locational success. There's a deeper analogy that even applies to more than stadiums. But could could you talk a little bit about the success of the Cubs where it counts, which is drawing, you know, attendance, drawing people to the games and how their location has been a big part of that. Well, I think it's their location and I think it's just, uh, you know, to use another baseball analogy, the Cubs are uh, somewhat standing on third base and thinking they hit a triple. Right. Um, (laughs) Yes. uh, (laughs) uh, Trends moved in their direction. Starting actually going back to 84, I think that was the time when people started to watch WGN TV and uh, see daytime baseball on television, Harry Carey. And, you know, there was this love of the Cubs. It, it actually, probably it did precede that. I mean, going back to, what was it, 69 when they, they had a great season and fell behind the Mets uh, that year. But they had a great lakefront location, uh, not too far from downtown, in a place that was ascendant. You know, there's you know other institutions uh, that are nearby: DePaul University, Loyola University, hospitals, uh, a great housing stock. It was really only probably in the '80s that the uh, the whole entertainment uh, scene really rose there. You know, that came a little bit later. But they had public transit uh, right to the stadium. They had a lot of locational advantages and I think marketing advantages that they were able to to make use of. Contrast that with the White Sox. By the way, if you look at historical attendance numbers, the Sox regularly outdrew the Cubs uh, up until the late 60s, early 70s. And then really from World War II up until the uh, you know late 60s, the Sox really outdrew uh, considerably uh, the Cubs. Then it was you know, another good 10, 15 years of either or, one would outdraw the other. And then pretty much by the early 80s, uh, by the time 84 comes around, the Cubs are regularly outdrawing the Sox. And I think right now the Cubs have outdrawn the Sox 29 out of the last 30 years. The Cubs even outdrew the White Sox when the Sox won the World Series in 2005. And a lot of that, you know, there's locational advantages that the Cubs have, but there's locational disadvantages that have developed over time that the Sox have right now. You know, quite honestly, uh, there were a few, more than a few people who are fearful of uh, going to the South Side location. There were a number of uh, public housing development projects that were built 
in sight. They were well within view of old Comiskey. Uh, when you're sitting on the upper deck and you can look out and see uh, rows of uh, public housing towers uh, into the distance. The location also just does not lend itself to the same density. Uh, it's uh, between two railroad tracks that are within about a quarter mile of each other. You know, uh, Canyon Expressway, no housing that's nearby, and no entertainment that's nearby either. And, you know, those things that, you know, seem pretty innocuous, maybe in the 50s and 60s, became more of a detriment later on. And you talk a little bit, uh, in one a piece you wrote about the White Sox turning around the South Side. You you talk about which team was more wind sensitive. And, and you said that, you know, the, the Cubs outdrew the White Sox, even when the White Sox won the World Series. There's a part of being in a neighborhood, whether it is a baseball team or a business or a community center or whatever it is, being within a neighborhood kind of sets a floor to how low your attendance can go. You you have people who are, in a sense, a captive market or within the vicinity. Even in the, the years when the Cubs were really, really bad, it was still kind of fun to go to the ballpark. And it was just up the street, so why not go? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And the fact is, is I've been to both stadiums many times. And you go to Wrigley, and even, you know, as recently you know, as five years ago, I mean, the Cubs won last year. Uh, and, you know, even though they're yeah, having the best season this year, they've been in it. But, you know, for the last two, three years, uh, they've been, you know, one of the top teams in Major League Baseball. But five years ago, you know, they weren't so hot. Uh, and that was when they started to sell so that they could, you know, rise to the top. Even during all of that, they were still drawing more than 3 million fans a year. Uh, I think you're right that being in a neighborhood means that you have a certain floor. Uh, I've been to Wrigley in lean times, and there were you know bad teams, but there were still 35,000 people in the stands uh, having a great time. You know, that does not happen at the new Comiskey. I refuse to call it the guaranteed, well, I just did, guaranteed rate field. <laughs> not a fan of the new name. But if the Sox are not playing well, their attendance suffers. The Cubs have become integrated into the neighborhood that I, I really think there's only one other team in, in baseball that's the same, maybe two, the Red Sox, possibly the Cardinals. Uh, but the Cardinals are city treasure uh, for the entire St. Louis metro area. But the Cubs and the Red Sox are firmly integrated into the fabric of their neighborhood. Right. Right. I've been at both Fenway and Wrigley, and I was kind of amazed at Fenway of how, and I'm going to say this, and, and I don't mean to offend the Boston Red Sox people, outside it's gorgeous. Inside the field is gorgeous. But like that area in between, the causeway or whatever you call it, it's such a dive. It's just horrible. It's amazing how old and decrepit a lot of that is, yet no one would ever touch it because it's such a part of that uh, that neighborhood. Right, right. Well, that's uh, what Wrigley was to me prior to the uh, improvements that they've been making over the last few years. It was decrepit. It was old. It was falling apart. Uh, but it still drew uh, many people, and people were saying, you know, don't touch it, it's a historical treasure. Uh, the Ricketts family's made a lot of improvements, and to the consternation of a lot of fans in the area, the rooftop uh, neighbors and, and others, but uh, they have made a lot of improvements that I think 
have made it a much nicer and pleasant thing for people in the community. Uh, and it, they've kept their relationship with the surrounding neighborhood. You had a few recommendations for what could be done on the South side with the White Sox stadium. One of them I, I wanted to focus on or just give you a chance to elaborate on is essentially a strategy of taking the stadium where it's at and saying, all right, how do we make the area around this work better? What do you think that would do for the White Sox? Cause I, you know, baseball owners are in the business of doing baseball teams and stadiums and selling hot dogs and beer. They're not into housing redevelopment. Maybe they should be though. Right. Well, I think at a minimum, uh, they would uh, increase their floor in terms of attendance. Uh, like I said, I think that the Sox are pretty win-sensitive. They do really well when they are winning. Uh, they do not so well when they aren't winning. You know, I think you have a chance at evening that out if you create a pleasant environment. And I think that if there's anything that uh, we've seen is that people increasingly like the whole pageantry uh, that goes into going to a baseball game you know, well before and well after. Uh, and that becomes as much of a draw as the game itself. So I think that if they invest in developing that, they would see uh, a market uptick in their attendance. You could see uh, housing develop around it, of course, uh, commercial development, bars, restaurants, clubs. If done well, uh, again, there's some site issues that make it you know, a challenge. But by doing that, they could literally raise the floor. And, and in those good years, be able to capture uh, longstanding fans that will come back. I think the fascinating thing about that and the thing that I, I kind of feel like our stadium debates around the country lose is, you know, here in Minnesota, we just built a new football stadium too. And for a while they were looking at putting it out in the middle of nowhere. The developers that wanted to do it were talking about basically building a new city around it, uh, all the restaurants and what have you, and then housing. You've already got that. At Wrigley, you already have it. In downtown Minneapolis, you already have it. And the bar doesn't need the stadium to be viable because there's people there anyway. I mean, during the game, they might have a surge, but, uh, you know, that's different than the feast or famine, you know, 81, you got 81 good days a year. And then the rest of the year, it's nothing. Right. Right. The Sox just have a location that's problematic. You have. Uh, or the way that it exists right now is problematic. There is a public transit link on the red line BTA uh, to get there, but it brings masses of people in who get right back on the train as soon as the game is over. Uh, and there's no incentive for people to stay uh, any longer and to linger in the neighborhood after that. Around Wrigley Field, there's so many other things to do that baseball becomes just one of those things. So what I did want to bring up, too, is the uh, the idea of Armour Field. I don't know if you saw. I, I did see that. that but yeah. Yes. Yeah. At the time that the new Fox Park uh, was constructed, which was really at the end of the old cookie cutter stadiums and right before the advent of the new the new old stadiums, I think Camden Yards in Baltimore was one of the first. Uh, actually, the new Comiskey and Camden Yards, I think, were within a year of each other being constructed. Armour Field was a proposal put together by an architect, his name is Philip Best, 
I'd have to check that. I don't recall. But he saw an opportunity to build a new stadium that would be integrated into the fabric of the community. And it didn't really go anywhere. And it had a lot of cool pieces and hallmarks that I think would have made it a special place. It would have looked very much like the old polo grounds uh, in New York City, uh, deep in the alleys and deep center field, almost an oval shape. Um, It would have been a unique place. And it would have had all of that other type of development around it that would have looked quite a bit like, uh, made it look much more like Wrigleyville. But, you know, 1989, 1990, where the uh, Sox were, they were either going to move to Florida, they were going to move to the suburbs, or they were going to uh, build a new stadium right where they were. And that's where the state stepped in and helped them to do that. So there was never a consideration for Armour Field. I want to switch over to Detroit. You grew up in Detroit. I know you're asked a lot because you wrote about it, uh, about Detroit's resurgence. Let's talk first a little bit about the downtown because I think it's a, a success story we can we can give some context to. Obviously, you've got the stadium that they put right kind of in the heart of it down there, but there's a lot of other stuff going on as well. Can we talk about some of the positive in Detroit? And then I want to ask you a little bit about the challenges. Well, I do think that uh, things are going great. Uh, you know, my last time uh, in Detroit was last fall, I guess it was. And, you know, I'm amazed at what's happening in, in downtown Detroit. I think the integration of the institutions and companies uh, has really made such a, a, a huge difference there. The university, Dan Gilbert, has really taken it. He's been a one-man development project uh, for the entire downtown. I think it's fantastic to see all those things happening. The new Q-Line streetcar that's going up and down Woodward Avenue, the main thoroughfare in the city. Yeah, I see a vitality down there that I have just not seen. Uh, I moved away uh, actually when I was in high school. Uh, but I have a lot of family uh, that lives in the Detroit area. Yeah, I think that there was an image, a narrative of decline that just stayed there. And, you know, everyone, I won't say accepted it, but just, felt unable to do anything about it. And to see this is just fascinating to me. It really is. There was a book in the last two years about Detroit's bankruptcy, and it it talked a lot about that public-private philanthropic partnership uh, while Detroit went through that receivership and, and how that had a huge impact on kind of, you know, the way things have emerged out of that. Do you think that narrative is true, first of all? And I guess, second of all, is it is it a model, you think, for other cities that are going to experience similar things in the coming years? I do think it is a model. Uh, I don't know if it's a model that can be successfully employed everywhere. Things happened in Detroit. I mean, it truly was an existential crisis uh, for Detroit when they filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, the drain that it was going to present to the entire state of Michigan in terms of the finances. And, you know, businesses, you know, with the big three uh, being involved, you know, were pulled into the mix. And the institutions, one of the things lost, I think, uh, by many people is that the, the whole nonprofit philanthropic framework in Detroit. It's gigantic. It's bigger than most any city of it, certainly of any city of its size, and it's equal to what you would find here in Chicago or in New York. 
I mean, when you think about it, like the Ford Foundation, which still has, uh, it has its headquarters in New York City, but has many, many things going on uh, in the Detroit area. And then others, uh, the Kresge Foundation, the Knight Foundation, um, you know, all of which have some, some roots in, in Detroit, founded by, you know, people who were corporate titans that started there. It presented a, a, a unique opportunity for Detroit to bring them into the mix and to contribute to what happened there. But I think there's not as much philanthropic opportunity that's come together in other cities. But that's what made it work in Detroit. That's what enabled them to get out of bankruptcy in, uh, a, what, maybe a year and a half, uh, which is amazing, amazing, given the amount of uh, debt that they were that they were claiming. That's just an incredible thing. But And, and the other thing is I think Really motivated actors uh, help them to do that. Uh, again, the state, the philanthropic community, uh, the major businesses—they all said, "You know, we've got to work together to make this, uh, to put this behind us, uh, to set this right, and then move forward." I feel like the word that you used is so right on in the piece you wrote recently about Detroit. You use the word reclamation. You contrasted that with uh, like the economic boom we see in, in places like Charleston and, and Houston and Dallas, I think, are the, the cities you cited. But talk a little bit about the difference between what a reclamation is and, and what a, you know economic boom as maybe we've come to know it post-World War II would be. Well, one of the things I have long thought about is that Detroit as a city – uh, within the state of Michigan, within the Rust Belt, within the Midwest, within the nation, really, uh, has been ostracized. All of the tensions that resulted from you know, the, the riots uh, that happened 50 years ago this week and the, the tensions that culminated after that, I think really led not to just a suburban sprawl, but just this whole narrative that Detroit, Detroit does not matter anymore. And Detroit just kind of disappeared, at least as a positive, uh, really disappeared you know, from the national consciousness. You know, there was nothing positive coming out of Detroit, except the people moving to Atlanta and to Charlotte and to Dallas and you know, Phoenix. And go, you know, they were Detroiters who were moving on with their lives and going somewhere else. But I think that before Detroit, if it ever has a boom uh, again, it had to reclaim its position. Uh, it still is Michigan's largest city. It still is the economic engine of the state of Michigan. Uh, it still is the home of the big three. Uh, it's still is home of many, many talented workers of all types. And, you know, for at least 50 years, they neglected that. They, they neglected to uh, utilize that uh, position uh, for greater opportunity for everybody. The city needed to reclaim its position as, you know, the economic engine for the state of Michigan, uh, reclaim its position among the the family of cities in the Rust Belt uh, before it can go on to the next level, whatever that is. You know, if you know, Michigan, uh, Detroit decides it's going to move forward as uh, any number of ways. You know, it could be a champion of the music industry that builds on R&B and techno music. It could be uh, you know, a home, a center for Middle Eastern immigration. Uh, things that might seem right now, but, you know, uh, Detroit has one of the largest Middle Eastern immigrant populations of any city uh, in the country. Yeah, it has 
things that it could do, but it needed to reclaim its position first and, and restore its soul. It had to do things that would make it feel good about itself for a sustained period of time before it was able to move forward. As you describe kind of the genesis of Detroit, we can go back to the the day when you would compare Detroit to, say, a Buffalo or a Cleveland as as Great Lakes, Rust Belt cities that were on the ascension. And then Detroit had this huge kind of steroid, this this big boost that the others didn't during the you know, the auto building era. I'm going to use my own word. This isn't your word, but I, I wonder if you would agree. You, you kind of describe it as an overshoot in a sense. You know, we were, we were moving along and things were going really well. And then all of a sudden, bam, we, we had this just huge influx and we kind of overshot a little bit. Here's what I'm struggling with. And I've, I've struggled with a long time with Detroit. I too am inspired by the the downtown. I I don't have the reference points that you do of what it used to be like, but I I've been there half a dozen times in the last few years and and just found it a very exciting place. But once you get outside of that, it's hit and miss, and it's it's hard to not see a certain level of despair and just you know ponder like what what do we do? I've heard the Detroit mayor make a statement along the lines of, you know, no neighborhood left behind. Like we're, we're going to go in and, and, you know, make sure that every neighborhood and every house is, is taken care of and people aren't, but I, I don't see that happening. Is there something not based in reality with that narrative or what, what becomes of these places and particularly what becomes of the people that are there? How do we deal with a situation where you've had such massive overshoot and then kind of have to pick up the pieces? I think those are all excellent questions. Uh, I don't have a real answer uh, for them right now. Starting with the idea of overshoot, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, I think that if you look at late 19th century Detroit prior to uh, the auto boom, you see a city that if there's another city that's just like it, it's Milwaukee. Milwaukee as a the largest city in, in a mid-sized Midwestern state. Uh, it is the port that transfers, you know, lumber from up north to uh, places uh, to the south and east and west. And it's you know, a mid-sized, you know, medium to large-sized uh, U.S. city that is the, you know, the economic capital of its state. That's where Detroit was at that time. Uh, and then it gets this uh, injection from the auto industry and makes it something much bigger than it probably was ever intended to be. And led, by the way, by somebody in Henry Ford who was about as anti-city uh, as any corporate person at that time. So it's not as if he intentionally did anything to make it a better place himself. He was, like I said, very anti-city. Um now, fast forward, you know, a hundred years, and now we're in this period where uh, Detroit has gone through that down period. It is, you know, climbing back up, and we're getting that investment downtown, that revitalization downtown. But you're right; there's still all these neighborhoods uh, just beyond downtown that are still looking pretty, uh, pretty scarred. I think we're going to enter a period where there's just going to be this bright vibrant downtown that's going to be surrounded by uh, blight, 
uh, emptiness and abandonment, uh, and then neighborhoods on the outskirts of the city that are going to be somewhat in transition. Uh, and that's where I grew up. I grew up uh, on the northwest side of the city, you know, kind of far from a lot of the devastation and destruction, but you could see it from where I was. Those are the neighborhoods that are you know, in a tenuous position right now. You know, the thing is, is that it remains to be seen whether that part that's in the middle, is it going to be rebuilt? Is there going to be new new plans for how to use it or how are they going to figure that out? Um, and honestly, I just don't know right now. I, I really don't know. I find your insights on Detroit interesting when they're juxtaposed with your insights on Las Vegas. <laughs> you went to Las Vegas recently and you, you wrote about that as well. And I, I think when we talk about overshoot, you know, to me, looking back, we can see overshoot in a city like Detroit and see the difficulty that that then causes. But you've got a place in Las Vegas that to me is in like the middle of the overshoot, right? <laughs> it's not in the rear view mirror. It's in, in a work in progress. I'd like you to talk a little bit about Las Vegas and, and maybe start with, again, the positive experiences that you had on, on the strip, which, uh, you know, different than, uh, Wrigley Field is more like Comiskey in that it's a, it's a place unto itself without really this, this kind of, surrounding interconnection but as a place it's not bad right right you know vegas is really weird uh to me um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's probably weird to a lot of people yeah i but, tell you uh, that, I, I think <laughs> my first trip there uh as you know as a planner getting off the plane and going i just i looked at it like this is just bizarre. I mean, I think it's meant to be bizarre, like socially and culturally, but the, the, the design and layout of it is bizarre too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, it really is. Yeah, it, It's unlike any other place that I've ever been to, but it's, it's a place constructed to extract money from you. Yeah, that's what it is. First of all, every time I've ever been out to uh, Las Vegas, and I've been there several times over the last 15 years, Every time I've been out there has been uh, for business, and it's been for planning business. I worked on a neighborhood plan. The first time I went out there was a neighborhood planning effort that uh, my consulting company at the time was working on on the uh, West Las Vegas, which is actually northwest of downtown Las Vegas. So I got a sense of the the dual nature of Las Vegas. You know, Las Vegas that is the Strip, and Las Vegas that is the rest of the city. You know, that's what uh, has always struck me about Las Vegas. But for the Strip itself, I had not been, I should say, I had not been to Las Vegas until uh, this past May I went, but I had not been in about mm, 12, 14 years. So there's a lot of change that was there. And one of the things that I noted was that it's a much better pedestrian experience than it was 10, 15 years ago. The owners of the casinos have been quite a bit uh, to make it a, a much more walkable place going up and down the strip. But they've kept every bit of the uh, exclusivity to it. It's still just as private uh, as it ever was. You know, that was one of the jarring things to me, too. You know, we look at places that are pedestrian-oriented and look at places that are, you know, very walkable. Uh, and what usually comes to the planner's mind is you know, it has a very public nature to it. But no, not in Las Vegas, it doesn't. And uh, that's 
you know, one of the things that that's very different about it. But you get away from the strip and uh, you get a, into the rest of the city, and it's your typical conventional uh, suburbia. Uh, it doesn't look any different than uh, much of what you would see in suburban Chicago or suburban Dallas or just suburban anywhere. And when you're growing in a desert the way that it is, uh, there's always going to be those challenges that are going to be uh, this a city like Las Vegas is going to be faced with in terms of its sustainability. Oh, the other thing I would add to that is the strength and the uh, domination, I think, of the Strip has really uh, hurt downtown Las Vegas. And I think that that's one of the things, even though they've done quite a bit to try to strengthen it, it just still can't match up in terms of the bright lights and the appeal of the Strip. And, uh, And honestly, I think that there are people who don't want it to detract from the Strip either because that's the, the cash cow is. It, it, so it's relatively weak downtown. Uh, you know, the, the rest of the city is pretty conventional suburbia. Uh, and then this gleaming bright spot, and that's Las Vegas. I want to try to tie this into the, the conversation we had about Detroit, because you, you had two pieces on Las Vegas, and the second one you had some observations. One, one of them is that Las Vegas seems to be nearing its physical limits, and you follow that up with some observations about their fragility. You know, what if, what if tourism industry changes? It has in the past. That's had an impact. You know, what if it does today? How is climate change and, and, and things affecting, uh, you know, weather patterns? How, how is that going to affect a city out in the middle of a desert? But you, you also write about how their perception of what is old and historic is very different than other parts of the country. This is a, this is a very uh, young place in terms of its building style. They've never really gone through anything that isn't first generation or first life cycle. They've, they've not had to redevelop. They've not had to, you know, reclaim things that are, are used and make better use of them. And on a backdrop of all that, uh, most of the jobs out there are pretty low wage, you know, kind of trying hard to make ends meet. They, they don't seem to have a lot of fallback. When you look at the overshoot that Detroit experienced, do you see the same kind of parallels in this kind of fragile place that is Las Vegas? And what are the implications of that? Chuck, that's a great question. I I do see evidence of overshoot in uh, Las Vegas, the the entire Las Vegas Valley. Uh, I think that they are definitely reaching the limits of... Uh, of the valley, I mean, the physical limits of it, and being in the desert and surrounded by mountains on all sides, there is an, an actual physical limit uh, to what they could do. The right people will start to turn inward, I and mean, developers will start to look at some community, some subdivision, some neighborhood, and say, you know, we can't go up the side of the mountain. We'll need to look at how we can do infill. And But it requires a, a, a shift in mindset for people to do that. Uh, I think it's probably been successful in some areas. When I look at, I don't know, I've never been, I've never been to LA, but uh, my sense is that uh, the Los Angeles metro area has pretty much gotten it right. You know, when they reached the limits uh, going to the mountains, they started to look inward uh, for opportunities, and they started to build their um, uh, public transit system around it. I don't know if Las Vegas is going to be able to do that, but it really is a challenge. And you're right about the historic nature. You know, I 
as a consultant, when I was working out there 15 years ago, I really found it amusing when people were talking about their historic neighborhoods and their homes were built in the 60s. I'm thinking, you know, historic where I'm from doesn't even begin until the 1920s. You know, so I just really find it that it's going to be a tough transition for them to transition from, you know, what they have in terms of building stock to what they're going to need to be able to survive. Uh, increasing densities if they're going to accommodate more people as opposed to just endless subdivisions of sprawl. Uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. But I definitely do see symptoms of the uh, overshoot there. Uh, that are probably similar to what happened in, in Detroit. And the other thing I would say is that uh, uh, climate change is going to impact that. You know, if you know, one of the things that I saw is Lake Mead uh, at a low level. I'm flying into Las Vegas, and you can see the areas where less water means less people, ultimately. And uh, if they're not able to uh, accommodate the uh, water needs of the people who are living there, the people will may eventually leave. So. That could be a driver of population loss. I don't know when. Mid-century? You know, I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but uh, it could be something that happens. And then you have a built environment that's built that exceeds uh, what it's able to sustain. And that could be a problem uh, in the future, too. The Lake Mead situation has always kind of resonated with me the same way you hear people talk about bankruptcy. You know, I I, I went bankrupt very slowly and then very suddenly, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, right. and Lake Mead seems like it's a little bit like that. Like, you know, it's the water's going away very slowly and then it's going to be very suddenly. And, you know, it, it's not something you can react to very quickly. You know, a response to that kind of thing is a systematic response. One of the most powerful essays that you wrote is the, the latest one that you posted and it's titled On the Outside Looking In. And with this, the backdrop of the Wrigley Comiskey conversation, the re, you know, resurgence of Detroit and the reclamation that is going on there, this fragile nature of, I would say the suburbs, but we can just look at, at Las Vegas as, as an example of a, of a disconnected place and, and how it's fragile. You write this essay about, kind of the lure of the suburbs for, for people who have not experienced that, who, who that's not been their, uh, their experience over the last 40, 50 years. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that for the people listening. In the context of the, those other posts that you wrote, to me, this one is a, is a really, really powerful one. We're having a dialogue on gentrification and what that means and, and, wringing our hands, you seem to be going at it in a, a very different approach, and I, I find it novel and important and powerful. Talk a little bit about it. Well, this is something that uh, you know, I've, first of all, documented with data uh, in seeing the increasing numbers of uh, white residents who are moving into core cities and the increasing numbers of minorities uh, moving into the suburbs corresponding declines in white population in uh, suburban areas outside of core cities and corresponding increases uh, or decreases in uh, core cities of, of minority populations. Well, particularly blacks, Latinos and Asians tend to be increasing in both areas, but blacks tend to be uh, declining in cities and increasing in suburbs. But it's also something that I'm living on a personal level. 
I live in the suburb of Chicago. I grew up, as I said, in Detroit and lived most of my life, uh, most of my time here uh, in on the south side in different locations. Uh, my wife grew up on the west side of Chicago, and she grew up, in fact, in the Wicker Park neighborhood through the 70s and 80s, uh, when Wicker Park, which many people might know now as you know one of the uh, gentrified and trendy neighborhoods of Chicago, but my wife and her family moved out of there in the early 80s because the place was crime-ridden, dangerous, poor schools, and uh, they got out of there. They moved into another neighborhood uh, in Chicago, but that whole experience really shaped my wife's opinion of the city. Now, fast forward 30 years, and, you know, Wicker Park is something completely different, and it honestly blows her mind, you know, that Wicker Park uh, has become what it what it is today. But she made the choice that, you know, when she had the chance, she was going to go to the suburban experience that everybody else had. And I think that we're seeing, in particular, a lot of African-American families make that same decision. The data shows that uh, Chicago has lost about 200,000 African-American residents uh, since 2000, I think 2010. It's been going down pretty substantially. Uh, and a lot of them aren't just moving to the Sun Belt, but they're moving to the suburbs. And uh, at the same time, you know, there are whites who are moving into the city in increasing numbers. Uh, I think the problem is going to be uh, is that where the opportunity is is going to shift. I think businesses will follow uh, the workers who are moving into the city. Uh, entertainment will follow uh, the people who are moving into the cities. And infrastructure investments will follow the people who are moving into the cities. Um, and there's no uh, framework to support uh, a lot of the things in the suburbs that uh, – related to maybe increasing poverty or other social services to assist with people who are uh, maybe getting uh, poor in, in suburban locations. So that's one of the challenges I think that's happening. And that's why I frame it in that way of being on the outside looking in, uh, where I think you're, you're going to find families that are going to be saying, hey, we moved to this area, thought it was going to be great, but everything that we thought we were moving for, has, moving here for, is moving away from it. I want to read part of what you wrote because I think it's really powerful. This comes from the piece on the outside looking in, uh, quote, people of color will continue to move to suburbia in increasing numbers. They will do so for the same reasons people before them did affordability, good schools, lower crime. They are doing so in part because suburbia is something that eluded them for so long and is now within their grasp. As they move in, they will begin to wield more influence on suburban politics just as suburban political influence wanes. And then later on you say, over time I see wealth being pulled from suburbia and back into cities in quite the same way it happened in the middle of the 20th century, only in reverse. We've often called that part in the middle of the 20th century white flight, right? As a way to kind of describe an abandonment or a, a you know, a walking away from you know, certain neighborhoods and, and really leaving people behind there uh, without a lot of, of care for that. Do you see that same thing kind of starting to happen uh, with our suburban development pattern? And what are the implications of that? How, how do we learn from history 
and not repeat some of these mistakes? I'm working on that uh, on two fronts. Uh, One is, I think, a piece like this where I'm talking about where there's the possibility of this uh, wealth extraction that's going to happen. Honestly, I think that's inevitable. As you've written so much about uh, the American Ponzi scheme and how uh, the life cycle of suburbs is, was never meant to be sustainable for long periods of time. It's inevitable that you know the suburbs are going to have this collapse. Uh, unfortunately, it's going to happen uh, as increasing numbers of minorities are moving into those communities. The other front that I've been working on is <laughs> uh, active engagement uh, with the growing Yimby community. There are a lot of people, and I've taken a lot of flack for this, uh, but uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Yimbies, and they've been saying, uh, you know, we need more housing, we need more housing, we need it now, we need it everywhere. Um, that is a message that I think is probably very good for most of the coastal cities uh, in in America. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, a less relevant message for cities in the interior of the country, particularly in Chicago. My fear is that if you know suddenly the lid was blown off and you can build to the highest densities and uh, throughout Chicago, uh, developers will concentrate on building where the demand is biggest, where the demand is strongest, and they will overbuild in high demand areas, and there will be a glut of units in those areas. Prices will go down for people in those areas. However, that means that investment is not going into uh, outlying city neighborhoods. That means investment is not going to suburban areas. And I think we're just going to ultimately end up having uh, areas of uh, dense areas of affluence surrounded by abandoned areas of poverty. That's not being acknowledged right now by the Yimby community, which I think yeah, it's like I said, it's a great message for coastal cities. I think that San Francisco and New York uh, have challenges with affordability that you know Chicago just doesn't right now, or much of the Rust Belt just doesn't right now. But if you try to employ those same strategies there, it could be devastating. I see even in my own little small town here in, in central Minnesota, the same kind of, I think, rational conversation going on. Uh, people who have grown up poor People who have grown up, you know, in town in some of the neighborhoods that have been in decline in town. Now having the choice, uh, you see housing out on the edge, a little bit more affordable. Uh, the prices are not rising as quickly or some places even going down. And for them, it's a step up. It's an improvement. And there's plenty of people willing to buy the place in town now because those are hot. Those are, you know, picking up. It's, it's hard for me to look at my neighbors. And say, you know, oh, don't be stupid. You know, don't you, you shouldn't want what I wanted 20 years ago. You know, <laughs> can't you see? And I, I feel it within myself when I'm, when I'm, you know, confronted with my neighbors, uh, undergoing this. There's something to me that feels very like privileged and elite in the sense that I get where they're at. I get why they would want to make this change. But there's a part of me that says, oh, don't, don't do it. Please don't do it. How do we respect that? How do we respect that uh, sense that is, um, you know, 
this is something I've like you describe your wife. I've wanted to live in a suburb and now is our chance to do it. Let's go do it. How do you not disrespect that, but yet have an end result that isn't the antithesis of, of the fifties and sixties white flight? Sometimes I just feel like, uh, uh, you just have to let people make the decisions that they want to make on their own or are able to make on their own. Uh, I talk about my wife, but maybe 10 years ago, I was walking in a project, working on a project in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. It was on another neighborhood project, another neighborhood plan in a neighborhood that was uh, near downtown Raleigh, which is rapidly expanding and was putting pressure on an old historic black neighborhood just to the east of downtown Raleigh. We went down there and started talking about uh, uh, you know, development types that would accommodate the growth uh, that was expected to come their way, talking about uh, more uh, multifamily developments, mixed use. And, and we got uh, quite a look from many of the residents there. And they were saying that, you know, this was a, uh, and they were right, it was a, sort of a, a, a small, it was, even though it was next to downtown, it was uh, semi-rural in many respects, small homes. Uh, and people were saying that we want the chance to build a suburban type community in our right next to downtown Raleigh. And they wanted white ticket fences. They wanted single family homes. They wanted, you know, some amenities. They said, you're not including those things right now. And uh, we said, well, those, you know, the mixed use and, um, you know, multifamily, that's what people are demanding right now. And they said, well, did they get their single family homes before they get the multifamily? And we say, well, I guess they did. And they said, well, we want the chance to be able to do that too. And that was a comment that stuck with me. There were people who just said, you know, we want to be able to follow the same path, the same trajectory uh, that other people did before us, even if it's proven to be wrong. We want to be able to have the same sense of going along the same trajectory. Now, I think it's going to mean that there's going to be some uh, economic loss and some dislocation as a result. Uh, Hopefully, they'll be able to uh, figure out a sense of uh, a way to to recapture that as time goes on. But yeah, there are people who just really feel like they want to go along the same trajectory and follow the same uh, pattern. I don't know if we can get them out of that. I I can't get my wife out of that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, same here. Same here. (laughs) We moved into town a year ago and uh, I would have done it a decade ago. And and my wife is, a, am sure like yours, my wife is a, a brilliant, beautiful person, but, but she, you know, had a sense of what living in town was and what living in a suburb was. And she wanted the suburb. That was a long, hard conversation to have. I feel in a sense, like we're reliving like a tragedy again. I go back and I read people in the fifties and sixties who were writing about this as it would, as it was happening. And there was a certain level of futility that they seemed to express in their writings you know, can't you see what's happening? And I, I, I kind of feel a little bit like we're in that same place. And, and maybe it's just our lot in life to, to watch it happen. I feel kind of sad about that. I agree. Uh, I think that it's our duty to just continue to bring it up to let people know that there's historical precedent for all of this that's happening. You know, same stuff, different patterns. It's replaying itself all over again. But yeah, uh, like I said, I'm 
uh, as fearful of uh, the Yimby advocates uh, who I think may get their way and see an increase in number of uh, units in some areas and increased affordability. But I think we'll see larger affluent areas surrounded by more uh, vacant, abandoned, and, and impoverished areas and greater inequality as a result. And people will wonder why, how did that happen? It will not be any different than it was when money flew outward to the suburbs. That was the, the affluent corridor and the cities were, were the decimated interior. We've seen it before. We've seen it before. I just hope that we can maybe you can create some change by still bringing, uh, bringing voice to it. Pete Saunders, he can be found at thecornersideyard.blogspot.com. Uh, we're going to put that link on our site. So if you're looking for him, you can go there. I hope we can chat again. I really, really have enjoyed this. And if I make one request of you, it'd be to write more often. Your, your writing is fantastic. I, I love it. And I, I know it's a commitment, but uh, I, can't, uh, I can't wait for the next piece to go up. All right. I really appreciate it. It was certainly my pleasure talking with you. You know, I, I try to write as often as I can, uh, you know, between the corner side yard and the, uh, the Forbes commitment uh, that I, uh, I can't write enough for either one of them. Uh, <laughs> so I just try to keep, <laughs> uh, keep trying to, uh, you know, write as much as I can. But uh, it was certainly my pleasure speaking with you. I really enjoyed it. Well, let's let's keep in touch and do this again. All right. All right. Take care. Have a nice weekend. All right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Right. Yeah. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.